This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Well, we are in the penultimate episode of the series, Son of Righteousness. Man, it's been a lot of fun. I've loved how we've dug into what did it mean when Jesus called himself the Son of Man? What did it mean when the disciples called him Christ, Messiah? We dug into, just a couple weeks ago, what it meant that he was the Son of Righteousness from Malachi. And that was so much fun. We talked about Hezekiah and the crazy things that went down with him and Isaiah. Tonight we're going to talk about the Last Supper. Jesus has come marching into the city on the back of a donkey to his temple. The son of righteousness comes to his temple. That was awesome and profound. And here we are, the last night of his life. I want to dig into the meaning behind what we see in the elements of what we call communion, Eucharist, Last Supper, whatever you want to call it. But you got to remember that scripture is masterfully complex. It's written by God through 40 plus people across several thousand years in multiple countries. Most of these people never met each other, and yet they attest to the same God of the same character with the same purpose. It's masterfully woven together into a tapestry. If you were to think about it, like kind of like a puzzle that each of these guys God spoke to them for something that was relevant in their life, in their circumstances. And they wrote to proclaim God's word for what was happening there. But their, their little piece was just a piece of the larger jigsaw puzzle that whenever we back out, when we look at the Bible as a whole, we see that there is a master picture. And, and we call that God's self-revelation. It's what God has chosen for us to know about him. Mark in his book, asks two questions. Who is Jesus? And if he is, if we come to the conclusion that he is the Messiah, the Christ, then how is he going to fulfill the role of of Christ? How is he going to fulfill the role of Messiah? Jesus is going to paint a vivid picture of profound symbolism pointing to what's going to happen in a matter of hours. Talking about the cross, his death, crucifixion. And he's going to paint a picture for them of what is going on at the cross so that they can later down the road look back and go, wow, that's what was going on. And he's going to teach us this through the symbolism of the Last Supper. So let's jump in. Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in just verse 1. We Do we have our? Yes. Good job, Isaac. Thank you for getting the computer going. Thank you for whoever's running it back there. You guys are awesome. I'm so glad that you're on, on the team. Yeah, give them a hand. They're awesome back there. Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people might riot, because everybody's loving Jesus' ministry right now. And they can't just drag him off in front of the crowds that are all supporting him. So I want you to catch several things. One, it's Passover, the celebration of Passover. We're going to dig into that in a second. Two, they have a very specific purpose. They're not out here to, I don't know, throw trash talk at Jesus. They're not trying to sabotage him. They want to kill him. That is the goal. The chief priests, the ones that are supposed to be mediators between God and man, are trying to kill God in flesh. This is incredibly, painfully ironic. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Actually, let me just skim through this but I don't want you to miss this. They're coming up on the Passover and this beautiful thing happens while Jesus is visiting this guy named Simon the leper. Jesus had healed him. And while he's in there having this meal, this woman comes in. Do y'all know the story? And she breaks this jar of expensive perfume over the head of Jesus. And everyone's like mad at her. 
And Jesus says, do not stop this. What she has done is so beautiful. She's anointed me for my burial. And he's foreshadowing what is to come. And he even goes on to say that wherever the gospel is preached, she's going to be remembered for this gift that she gave. Now let's pick up in verse 10. Then, as in immediately after that story of the woman breaking this oil over Jesus' head, something happens in Judas. This is a turning point. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests, those guys trying to kill Jesus, to betray them. They were delighted to hear this. They are like high-fiving and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas has become the key to their plot to killing Jesus. Verse 12, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now you need to understand, today is an annual holiday of the Passover. The heads of every home in all of Jerusalem, people were traveling from all over the world, all the Jews from everywhere getting together, and they're going and they're purchasing a spotless lamb, They're going to sacrifice it at the temple, and they're going to bring it home tonight to eat. And so the disciples are saying, where are we going to go? We we don't have a lamb. What's the plans here? Verse 13. So he, talking about Jesus, sent to the disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Stalk this guy. Say to the owner of the house as he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So this is the second time that Jesus does this this miracle of sort of knowing what events are going to take place. The last time was whenever they said, Jesus, we're about to head into Jerusalem. And Jesus says, walk into town, find a donkey, grab it. Someone's going to ask you what you're doing with it. Tell them that the master needs it and bring it out. So this is the second time Jesus does this kind of word of knowledge miracle. Jesus is absolutely in tuned with what's going on right now. Nothing that's going to transpire is a surprise. God's not like, Judas, man, didn't see that coming. Everything is within God's sovereign plan. And Jesus is already beginning this to show us that he is in control. Verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. I don't know if that quite grasps the moment there. You imagine if, like, at Thanksgiving, Uncle Ernie is like, By the way, one of you are going to kill me today. I think he'd be like, Unk, <laughs> calm down. They don't, even, they don't even know how to wrap their minds around this. What do you mean someone in here is going to kill you? They've already known that Jesus is prophetic. They know and believe that he's sent from God. And they've got to wrap their, they're looking at each other going, it, it can't be me? No, me, Lord? They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Again, don't miss it. Jesus is absolutely aware and clairvoyant of what's going on right now. He knows ahead of time who it is. He's calling Judas out because God is in control. 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. So Jesus is instituting the worship of remembering him through communion here. But to, be, to begin to grasp the depth of what Jesus is doing, the symbolism that he's using, we're going to have to go back in time, a long time back. And we're going to begin to follow paths and trails. There's actually three themes that Jesus is bringing that are all converging into this symbolism that will, in several hours, converge cosmically, spiritually, on the cross. These three themes run through the whole Bible, and I hope that tonight is a turning point for you, that when you read the Bible, you're going to start catching them. 
you're going to start reading it differently. It's going to be like hashtag no filter all of a sudden on the Bible because these themes are going to start being so present and real to you. These themes are one, the substitute for death, two, the provision from God, and three, the covenant. Let's begin with the Passover lamb. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. The Passover is a national holiday that celebrates Israel's emancipation from slavery in Egypt. So if you go way back when, all the way to the book of Exodus, you find the children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. God has done incredibly awesome, really terrible plagues to try to free these guys from Pharaoh. And over and over again, God says, I'm going to do this thing, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so he doesn't let you go. And when he doesn't let you go, I'm going to do more awesome stuff so that I can show off how great I am and how all their puny little Egyptian idols are dust compared to me. And finally, after not letting them go, God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to do one more. This time, his heart's going to be softened, and he's going to let you go. And this is what it's going to be, the coming final plague. This is Exodus 11, verse 4. Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I, talking about God, this is crazy to wrap your minds around, y'all. I, God, will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. God himself is going to come through the land of Egypt and bring death to the firstborn in every house. On one level, this is really interesting justice since it was the Pharaoh that said, I want the sons of every Hebrew family to be thrown into the Nile and drown. It's interesting how that plays out. But I want you to catch this. The instructions from God for the final plague, if you were to sit down and read it, it's Exodus 12. First of all, the month that this is happening is going to become the first month of their new year. God's establishing their calendar. Ten days in, they're going to select a spotless lamb, pure white lamb, and they're going to bring it home to live with them in their house. They're probably going to give it a name. It's going to become a pet for four days. And then on the four days later, they are to kill it. So this thing that you just got kind of got close to, you know, sheepy or fluffy or whatever you want to call your lamb, now you have the heart-wrenching experience of taking it and killing it. The blood of that lamb, they're going to smear on both doorposts and then over the top. And then they're going to roast and eat the meat of that meal with unleavened bread, bread without yeast. And so this is going to be this big meal that they have. Their whole family is going to get, to get together and do this inside the house that is covered by the blood on the doorposts. And their meal should be eaten with their belt on, their sandals on, and their walking stick in hand because God is saying, I'm releasing you tonight. Be ready. Be ready to get out in a hurry. Verse 13 of chapter 12. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, remember God's coming through. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day that you shall keep as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep this feast. So God is instituting not only a one-night thing, but he's also asking them to remember this night of freedom from slavery for the rest of their generations through this meal of the Passover lamb and unleavened bread. So God's setting up several things. One, he's informing them of their imminent release from slavery. He's giving them instructions for salvation from the hand of death. He's preparing them to leave quick, and he's instituting this meal, this annual holiday of the blemish-free lamb and the unleavened bread. You see, at Passover, Jesus is fulfilling the very meal that they're eating. This Passover celebration reminds them of Yahweh freeing them from slavery to Egypt, and the spotless Passover lamb reminds them of the means by which they're saved from death. The lamb would die, so they didn't have to die. Don't, get, don't miss this. The lamb is going to die, 
so that its blood can be painted on the doorpost so that they wouldn't have to die. The lamb is a substitute for their death that would have happened. The lamb represents a substitute. And Jesus with his disciples right now at this meal around this table on this holiday is showing them that something even greater is happening. He is their spotless substitute lamb who will free them from slavery to sin and whose blood will cover them, saving them from eternal death. Are y'all with me? But the theme of God's substitute for death doesn't begin at their deliverance from Egypt. You have to go even further back to an awful test where a man named Abraham would show his faith on a level that's uncomparable anywhere else in the Bible. Genesis 22, 1 through 3, God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless your socks off. You are going to inherit this big, beautiful land, but you know what? That land is going to be full of your descendants. You're going to have so many kids, it's going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. Just kids everywhere, kids. I'm going to make you a nation out of just you. Nation. Awesome. And Abraham's like, oh, yay, yeah, let's do it. And then doesn't have kids. Him and Sarah are totally barren. And then finally, God comes, fulfills his promise, and Abraham has one son. And then God comes to him and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, your beloved son. Take him to a certain place that I'll show you, and I want you to sacrifice him, kill him, and burn him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham's wrecked. And at the same time, we don't get a single sentence of speech from Abraham back to God. We just know that somewhere in the dark, writhing in anguish, he comes to the conclusion to be faithful to the God that has led him so far. And so he takes his son Isaac, and they go walking. And they come to a point where he actually lays the wood that he's going to start the fire with on his son's back. What a picture of Christ. And Isaac himself is going to carry this wood up this mountain. He'll take the wood and lay it out. He'll lay his son down on top of it, and he'll raise the knife to kill his son. And right then, an angel grabs onto his wrist. And God speaks from heaven and tells him not to do this thing. Let's read it. On the walk. Remember I told you the walk? Isaac's carrying the, carrying the wood. Genesis 22, verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, Dad. And he said, Abraham responds, Here I am, son. He said, Behold, we've got the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Don't miss this, guys. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. And so here we are, this dramatic scene, and Isaac is about to die willingly at his father's hand. Genesis twenty-two thirteen. His hand was just caught by the angel. God speaks to him and tells him not to kill his son. And God speaks and says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So the ram is a substitute for his son. That's beautiful and incredible. I think it's so amazing that Abraham got it a little bit wrong when he says God is going to provide the lamb for the offering. Because without him knowing it, Abraham is speaking prophetically by the Holy Spirit of an event to come that is not today. It shouldn't be a a lamb today because God has already ordained this to be the spotless lamb in the future. Are you with me? The lamb substitute. And then immediately after that, God reconfirms his promises Abraham, as soon as this whole thing transpires, the ram is burning on the altar and God speaks to Abraham again and says, Abraham, because you did this thing, because you didn't quit, because you acted in faith, because you were willing to sacrifice your son, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to give you a land to fill it up with all of your kids. 
It's a reconfirmation of God's promises. And a part of that promise is this. It's 22, verse 18, and God says, And through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Not just your family, Abraham. All nations will be blessed. The Passover lamb, please don't miss this. Write this down. Make a mental note. Take a shot of the screen. The Passover lamb represents a substitute for death that brings freedom. Freedom from Egypt. Freedom from death. So that's the Passover they're sitting around to celebrate. But Jesus stands up in the middle of the meal and he breaks the bread. Woo! 14.22. As they were eating, he took the bread and blessing him, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body. Are you ready for this? Buckle up. Jesus has been doing this bread thing for a while. Remember? He feeds the 5,000 in the wilderness with bread. Then he turns around and feeds the 4,000 in the wilderness with bread. It's like this double back-to-back miracle. He's trying to communicate something. And I'll tell you, we already went through it. He's communicating the Exodus experience where Moses gets them all out in the wilderness, and they're hungry, and they've got nothing. And God says, watch what I can do. I'm going to provide for you and your 2 million people. It's a throwback to Exodus 16 when God is going to provide manna in the wilderness and feed the whole company of Israel. That God is a provider God in the desert. According to John's gospel, Jesus says it the most plainly. John 6, 30-35. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? So they're like, Jesus, give us a sign that you're from God. What will you do? Hey, you know what? There was this really cool sign one time. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it was written. He gave them bread to eat. Jesus says to them, (laughs) very truly, I tell you, it wasn't Moses that gave you bread from heaven. It was my father who gives you true bread from heaven for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declares it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. It wasn't Moses. that gave you bread guys. It was only God that gave you bread. I'm bread. I am the one that the father sent to feed you, to nourish you, to be your, provision in the wilderness. The theme of God's provision stretches further back than just Exodus. Let's go back to the story of Abraham. Isaac says to his father, Father, here I am, my son. Hey, look, there's the fire, there's the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then, don't miss this. I don't know if you caught this before, but let's read this again. Verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Let's keep going. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord shall be provided, or it shall be provided. God has established himself as a provider for his people. And get this, scholars have already come to an agreement that 2 Chronicles 3.1 confirms that where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac is the very place that Solomon is going to build his temple and become this place of sacrifices for people to come be purified before God. How incredible is that? But it goes further back than Abraham. God's provision for his people through a substitute reaches all the way back to the beginning of time. Remember Adam and Eve? They received their punishment. They had been expelled from the garden because of their sin. And with their disobedience comes a shame for their nakedness, which they try to cover with leaves. But God, dot, dot, dot. Genesis 3.21. And Yahweh God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. From the very beginning of man's sin, God is providing. The man and woman are unworthy. But out of his great love, God offers grace. Grace is receiving a gift that you don't deserve. Out of his love, he gives grace. Their nakedness is a badge of their separation. It is a scarlet letter of their shame and separation from God. Shouting their sin and Yahweh covers their nakedness. Where did those animal skins come from? 
It came from the first sacrifice ever, and it was made by God. Animals had to die to cover their nakedness. This is the earliest sighting of the theme of substitution by sacrifice. And this begins the sacrificial system, which is going to be detailed in Leviticus and carried on until it's fulfilled at the death of Jesus. The bread represents God's provision. Take and eat. This is my body that was broken for you. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the spotless lamb who is provided by God to be our substitute, to die in our place. All right, if you only had the two buckle now, you got to go over the chest both ways. This is about to get exciting. You ready? Give me a shout. Elevate! All right. The wine. Mark 14, 23 through 24. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. All right. To understand this profound depth, we've got to go back. We have to understand what the word covenant means. It's not a word we use very often. Maybe you've heard it surrounding maybe a marriage, a marriage covenant. Another word for covenant is testament. So when you look at your Bible and you see the Old Testament and you see the New Testament, you have to understand that that is covenant language. This is the Old Covenant, and this is the New Covenant. So we are reading. We're, we're already beginning to engage in covenant thinking. I hope this changes how you read the Bible, because everything you read from cover to cover is going to change if you can start seeing it through a covenant lens. It's actually going to peel back a whole lot of layers that you didn't realize were filtering out good stuff. A covenant was a treaty or a commitment between two parties in the ancient world. This has been documented in every civilization throughout time. They would use this thing called covenant. It would either be between equals of social standing or it would be between a king and a vassal, a superior and a subordinate. Are you following me so far? It was a written contract between them. And throughout the Bible, we're going to see many covenants that are going to take form in a similar template to this. Now, here's the ancient template laid out. Hopefully, this is going to come out smoothly. The opening would be a preamble. This is where the king would declare all his titles. I am awesome. I am the king of this country. I have these qualities about me. There I am. I'm the king. The next thing would be a historical prologue. He would talk, the, the covenant would talk about the relationship between the king and the subordinate. The king might say, I defended you in such and such a battle, and I gave you such and such a land and this is the history that went on between us. And then there will be the stipulations of the, of the covenant. The king con- commits to do these things, and the subordinate, the vassal, would commit to do these things. So we are coming into a, you know, the ultimate pinky promise. Then, after that, would be a list of witnesses to this. Maybe it's the other men in the king's court. Maybe it's the the deities of that nation or the different gods or whatever. There'd be a list of witnesses that are testifying to this promise between the two parties. And then finally, there would be a list of curses and blessings. The curses would come on the person that would break the covenant, such as the king may say, if you break your end of the covenant, I will come and take your land. I will burn down your house. I will execute you. Here are the list of bad things that are going to happen if you break your end of the covenant. They may also be like spiritual things. Like they, again, they had like tons of deities in all these different nations. And they would say, the deities are going to you know, make you rot. I don't know, whatever. And then on the other side, there would be blessings. If you keep the covenant, here are the good things. You would receive the king's protection. You would receive uh, maybe food from the king's table or, or whatever. So let's look, skim through this again. You have the preamble. You have the historical prologue, like the, the history of the relationship. The stipulations, this is what we agreed to do. The witnesses and then the curses and blessings. Here's a couple notes that I don't want you to miss. These are going to become important. In a friendly relationship between the king and the vassal, in the written contract, the king would be noted as father. And the vassal or subordinate would be recognized as son. And so of all the beautiful layers 
of understanding God's calling himself a father, the intimacy, the personal relationship, that familial bond, it's also a recognition over and over and over again of a covenant that God is keeping and that we are in with him. Also, the subordinate is instructed to deposit this written treaty, usually with whatever the local temple is, and they're asked to read it all the time. Further, a covenant would be sealed by an animal being killed. That animal would be cut in half, half of the animal would be burned as a sacrifice, and the other half of that animal would be eaten as a covenant meal between the king and the subordinate. Are you starting to see a lot of connections here? God establishes five covenants with man in the Old Testament. And then through Jeremiah, he foretells a sixth and final covenant. Each covenant, don't miss this, each covenant does not abolish the former. Instead, it stands on top of the former. Covenant number one is the foundation of two, which is the foundation of three. Are you following me? Each one is going to build, and it's going to build into a picture that reveals God's character and God's purpose throughout time. Oh, yeah. The first one is with Adam. And this is the covenant that every other covenant is going to stand. This is the covenant that's going to set the tone for the rest of human history. Genesis one twenty eight, And we're going to see in this the blessing and stipulations. And God blessed them. And God said to them, so he blessed them. You're under the blessing, Adam and Eve. You're here. Good job. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over all the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the blessing is you're under God's blessing, which is what? What do they lose? They lose their eternal life. They lose their relationship with God. And then continued, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. We're going to see a further stipulation, and then we're going to hear what the curse would be. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, here's the curse, you will surely die. So our stipulations here are multiply, take dominion of the earth, don't eat the tree. Stipulations. God's blessing, if you hold this covenant, you will retain eternal life and you'll have relationship with God. The kind of relationship where God walks and talks with you. The curse, if you break this covenant, is death. We know the story. With their breaking of the covenant, they brought on themselves and their descendants the curse of death, both physical and spiritual. And the rest of the Bible will be spent dealing with this curse. God's going to do what we cannot. He is going to pursue redeeming a broken covenant, a broken relationship. God doesn't even leave them in the dark. He's going to go ahead and drop in a seed that there's hope. Genesis 3.15, I love it. God's talking to the devil himself, and get this. He says this, I'm going to put enmity or hate or battle, feud, war. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and then we get a singular male um, pronoun. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As in, in this battle, this cosmic war that we can see played out more metaphorically in Revelation, what's going to happen is in this battle, you're going to get him wounded, but he's going to crush your head to your defeat. A man coming through the human race will do battle with the ancient serpent. God is citing this covenant. And we also sort of get just a little bit of suggestion of God's provision and even a substitute that the man would be wounded. A trade-off. These are going to weave through the whole Bible, y'all. The next covenant that we see is Noah. So humanity is hopeless. They're under the curse of death and they're marred by sin. And humanity moves forward completely saturated, getting worse and worse and worse. They multiply, they expand. Sin is so infectious that they're just saturated in it. And a holy God looks at wicked mankind who is lost to pervasive sin. And he sees one man in his little tiny family. Noah is commissioned by God 
to reboot the human race through his survival in the ark. Genesis 9, 8 through 16. They land on Mount Ararat. The whole world's flooded. It's like the most gruesome day in human history. You know, like paintings on the walls of like children's. It just doesn't do justice. You know, like there's an ark, animals and floating bodies, you know. So they land and Noah and his family come out of the ark. This is Genesis 9, 8 through 16. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is within you. I'm going to skip forward a little bit. That never again shall be, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow, the rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Skipping forward a little bit. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This covenant is so interesting because it's one-sided. God never asks anything of Noah. He only makes a promise that he would never wipe out all of mankind again. Jesus fulfills that because all of mankind is stained with sin. All of mankind is just as pervasively wicked as we were before, and yet God doesn't have to wipe out all of mankind anymore. He keeps his end of the bargain, his one-sided covenant, and he sends Jesus so that there's an ark of freedom for us too because of God's covenant. Abraham was the third one. Verse Genesis verse, uh, chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of his family, out of the country that he knows, and God basically says, Abraham, start walking, and I'll let you know when you arrive. And Abraham goes on faith. And repeatedly, over and over again, that's like four times I think God shows up and gives Abraham the promise that we talked about a few minutes ago. But in Genesis 15, God even says, Abraham, this is our covenant between us. But I want to go back to what we read in Genesis 22, right after the near sacrifice of Isaac. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. And you probably didn't catch this before because I didn't. But you're smarter than me, so you, you might have. Like, I, I can see that I really am pretty, pretty dull sometimes. All right. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from, from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, talking about almost sacrificing his son, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall, shall possess the gate of the enemies. And in your offspring, don't miss this, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be what? Blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. Y'all, that's hearkening back to covenant number one. The Adam covenant, God is saying, Abraham, through you, I'm fixing the broken covenant that you're under the curse right now. Abraham, it'll be under you that I'm going to move my people from under the curse of death and move them underneath my blessing. Do you understand the weight of that promise to Abraham? I don't know if he could ever wrap his mind about, around what God was promising him. We are so blessed that we get to look back in hindsight at the bigger pieces of the puzzle, that God is promising Abraham that through him, mankind, God's people, will move back into the blessing of the contract, of the covenant. That is incredible. Fast forward. Abraham has Isaac, and through Isaac and Jacob, this nation grows. They end up having to go to Egypt to escape this cataclysmic famine. And while they're in Egypt, the family grows so big and so large that the Pharaoh gets scared that they're going to eventually overtake Egypt. And he enslaves them. And they become slaves for 340 years. And God sends Moses. And I love how this goes down because God will use Moses to bring them out of slavery through the Passover and he's going to take them out of the wilderness to a mountain called Sinai. And God's presence is going to descend on this mountain and his presence is like this cloud and this fire and this quaking. And people are terrified of it because there's so much power condensed into one place. 
And there God calls Moses up to speak with him. And Moses comes back with a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. And we don't have time to dig into all of this, but I'll just give you an outline. God establishes his covenant with them, and it follows very similar the template of the ancient covenant. In Exodus 19, there's a theophany of Yahweh, his self-revelation. This is who I am. In Exodus 20 through 23, God lays out the stipulations. Here's what I expect of you, and here's what I'm going to do for you. And then there's a moment, there's like, some of the blessings are laid out, but Deuteronomy 28 through 29 goes back and unpacks it. And you have this long list of blessings and curses. If you'll keep your end of the covenant, I'm going to blow your socks off. But if you break your covenant, it's going to be awful. You will come under this long list of curses. And then finally, Exodus 24, where we're going to pick up, God has them seal this covenant. Check this out. Exodus 24, three through eight. Moses came and told the people all of the Lord's words and all the decisions And all the people answered, we are willing to do all the words that Yahweh has said. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He's writing the book of the covenant. Early in the morning, he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and arranged 12 standing stones according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls for peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and he put it, took half the blood and he put it in bowls and the other half of the blood He splashed on the altar. Remember how they used to handle covenants in the ancient days. Half the animal would be burned, and the other half the animal. Yeah, you're following me. Splashed it against the altar. He took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people, and and they said, we are willing to do and obey all the Lord has spoken. They are coming into and saying and accepting God's covenant for them. So Moses took the blood and splashed it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Y'all, the Passover lamb would be recognized as the covenant animal, and the Passover feast, the covenant meal. This annual holiday would always remind them of their freedom from slavery. Their covenant with Yahweh was sealed by the blood of a spotless lamb and remind them of their purification from sin. From then on, the nation of Israel would hold two festival meals. One was Passover, reminding them of their freedom from Egypt. And two was the Day of Atonement, where they would sacrifice, again, spotless animals. And God would purify the nation of Israel for that blood sacrifice. The nation of Israel grows and grows and grows. They take the promised land, and they become so big that they eventually become an actual nation, And God ordains for them a king. And King David was the most noteworthy. He was like the beginning of the awesomeness. The family of Israel has become a nation. And David goes to God and says, God, I love you so much. I want to build a temple for you. I want to have some place where, not just a tent like we did in the wilderness, I want to have a temple. And God actually sends a prophet Nathan and tells David no. But then he flips over the coin and has an amazing promise. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. Talking about Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Starting to recognize covenant language here. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Y'all following still? With the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's an earthly promise here that David's going to have descendants. But I'm telling you, it's not going to be long until David's descendants are so evil that God is going to rain judgment down on the nation of Israel and wipe them out through Babylon. So does God's promises fall short? No. God says an eternal, forever established king and kingdom. There's covenant language here. This line is going to stretch into a king that would rule forever. And then finally, those were the first five. David's descendants get worse and worse and worse. They're horrible, awful, bad kings to the point that God is going to bring judgment to the nation of Babylon. 
and Babylon is coming. They're going to be destroyed. Everyone they know is either going to be murdered or drug off into slavery. And with this event right there on the horizon in front of them, God speaks to Jeremiah and says this. You ready? Jeremiah 31. We're going to start in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, not on stone. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and say to each brother saying, I know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, just like Malachi said, forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant is coming. Hang in there, Israel. It looks terrible, it looks bad, and it looks awful. But if you'll hold on to his faithfulness, if you'll look back and see that he has been good, and he's always lived up to his promises, hang in there. Be anchored because his new covenant isn't going to be on stone. It's going to be anchored deep down inside of our hearts. And it'll be in our hearts that he deals with sin once and for all. His relationship, his intimacy, that's going to, from the, between the divided parties, is going to be corrected. There's going to be forgiveness of sin repairing that foundational covenant that was broken thousands of years ago by Adam and Eve. This new covenant brings them out from the curse into the blessings. I love the way Paul says it in Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, having become obedient from the heart to the standard and teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become now slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members, your body, as slaves to sin and purity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your body as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification, purification, holiness. We are born, all of us, under the curse of the broken covenant. But through Jesus Christ, God's people are brought from under the curse, death and hell, and brought under the blessing again, eternal life, heaven, relationship. I want to spell this out. This is so... So let's take a look at these covenants because they each build on each other, right? There's Adam and Eve. God promises eternal life and relationship. There's Noah. God promises to never destroy the earth again. There's Abraham. God's going to bless all nations. There's Moses. God's going to purify his people. And there's David. God's going to establish an eternal king. Is that up there? Sweet. And they're upside down. Perfect. Just like they're supposed to be. Check this out. (laughs) We have... Bottom line, life and relationship, right? That's broken, but God is repairing it. God will never destroy mankind who is worthy of death, and yet God is not going to give death. He's going to provide Christ, right? Which means he is extending mercy. He is giving. Ah, It's amazing. He's not giving the punishment that we deserve. The next one, he's going to bless all nations. Again, deserving of sin, he's going to give a blessing that we don't deserve. (laughs) And then he's going to purify his people, breaking us off from the covenant or from the slavery to sin, and then turn around. And now what? We've broken off from being slaves and and mastered by sin. Now what? He's going to set up for us an eternal king that we do serve. And so here we are, the character of God and his purpose for us is he is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace who purposes eternal life for us through forgiving us of our sins so that we can follow our eternal king forever and ever. Amen. That is awesome. What a God we serve. The wine represents the covenant that is to be repaired by the blood of the perfect sacrifice. And now we come to Jesus. Mark 14, 22 through 24. As they were eating, he took the bread, the bread of provision from God. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup, the cup of wine representing that blood. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, 
which is poured out for many. What is communion? Communion is worship, and it unites all the body of Christ around the world. Everywhere that there is a believer of every denomination, if they call on Jesus Christ as their Savior, we all worship with communion. It's a table that was set by Jesus that stretches through time right now to where we sit. It's a meal that we participate in through obedience and faith, celebrating the awesome gifts of Jesus Christ as our Lamb of God. Mark asks us, who is Jesus? Here you go. Jesus is our substitute whom God provided to set us free from slavery to sin and whose blood restores the covenant with God, moving us from under the curse of death to God's blessing of eternal life and relationship with him. That is who Jesus is. Mark further asks, how will he fulfill the role of Messiah? John 3, 16 through 17, Jesus says in himself, for God so loved the world that he provided his only begotten son as a substitute that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life from a repaired covenant. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, the son of righteousness, our spotless lamb, within a matter of hours is going to be tried, tortured, and crucified for our sin. And three days later, he's going to resurrect from the grave. Jesus has instituted communion. And I hope that forever you see communion in such a new lighting because there's so much depth in just a couple sentences. No matter what gospel you read it in, there is just mounds of profound depth when he holds up the bread, when he holds up the wine, when he breaks it and says that it's his body and blood of the new covenant. Joel, would you come on up and and play for a couple minutes? Thanks, buddy. Tonight, I want to offer all of us the opportunity to partake in communion together. Because remember, this is what links the body of Christ through time. A hundred years back, a thousand years back, 1,500 years back, we've all been celebrating what Jesus did as the lamb together. I hope never again will we just see it as a dry symbol, but as something that is full of new life, that is an incredible worship. Paul actually gives us a warning because there's so much happening, there's so much grace and love and presence of the Holy Spirit surrounding this, that he actually gives us a warning. He says, don't come and do this in an unworthy manner. I think one of the best things that we can do is before we take communion together, let's get our hearts right before the Lord. Let's take a minute. Let's close our eyes. Ask the Holy Spirit to search us. Is there any sin that we need to ask the Lord for forgiveness for? Let's get our hearts right before us and the God who died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, who provided that substitute to repair the covenant. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.